This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. Ahead on the show today, Rachel Sanchez-Smith examines voting rights. It's part of the Natural Election Podcast produced by KUAF. That's coming up. But first, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Kruth is with me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, Kyle. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Late last week, you were in Little Rock for what was called the Day of Debates. Yes, I was. It was the Arkansas Press Association's Day of Debates. So candidates from across the aisle, uh, all candidates came and uh, for four major categories came and debated in Little Rock. When you say from across the aisle, so for instance, in the race for lieutenant governor, it was the Republican candidates, the Democratic candidates, a Libertarian candidate, all there together. All there together at the same time debating. (laughs) This was uh, put together by the Arkansas Press Association. Yes. And you were there for all four of these debates. I was there for all all four. So it was lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, secretary of state, and governor. Well, let's start with um, the lieutenant governor's race because there are plenty of high-profile Republicans who were on stage, but like we mentioned, all the candidates were there. Yes, yes. So the first debate was lieutenant governor. That was, uh, we had Republican Arkansas Surgeon General Dr. Greg Bledsoe, uh, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, former Arkansas GOP Chair Doyle Webb, Senator Jason Rapert, and Washington County Judge Joseph Wood and Chris Beckett. On the Democrat side, we had Kelly Kraut and then Libertarian Frank Gilbert. Uh, It was one of the more fiery debates of the day, probably the only really fiery debate that day, just because there were so many people and mostly uh, Republicans kind of jockeying for that main, you know, the big ticket seat. Right. So... That was sort of the, the big one of the day. So when you say fiery, what, what made it more fiery than the other three? There was a bit more name calling. Uh, there were a few exchanges. Uh, we've got a couple of clips from, I think, first off, Kelly Kraut made a slight jab at Attorney General Leslie Rutledge. And then there's also an exchange between uh, Greg Bledsoe and Jason Rapert. I think it's a good time to thank you for taking a short break from suing President Biden to join us this morning. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, this is this is fun. Uh, I would respond to Dr. Bledsoe's attack by saying, sir, you're a second generation politician. Well, the Surgeon General, actually, I was very busy over the last two years. I've been on five COVID committees and took care of patients in a busy emergency department, intubating them when they were dying of COVID. Jason Rapert, on the other hand, uh, sat in his living room and sent hate tweets out towards our healthcare officials and the people who were taking care of folks in our hospitals. No one in the state of Arkansas ever dialed 911 and asked for Jason Rapert. That's an absolute fact. We're hearing uh, excerpts from last week's day of debates that took place in Little Rock. So what else did we hear in this lieutenant governor's debate? So mostly they talked about their qualifications uh, for presiding over the Senate, which is sort of the main job of the lieutenant governor. Um, so we had uh, Bledsoe and Kraut talked about their non-politician uh, labels, and Judge Wood used his record as a Republican judge in a mostly Democratic majority county as uh, one of his qualifications. Rutledge, Rapert, and Webb uh, brought up their record serving in state government. And their challenger, Chris Beckett, uh, sort of used that point against them. Uh, We have a clip of that here. And um, I think the people of Arkansas, the people that I've talked to as I go around the state, are very appreciative that finally someone is calling out these rhinos like Jason and Leslie and Doyle for being around for eight to ten years and not governing like real Republicans. 
Chris Beckett, who is one of the many Republicans seeking the lieutenant governor's nomination for the GOP. Yeah, and he brought up a lot of more national talking points um, when he was addressing his other Republican challengers. So he mentioned Ron DeSantis, compared himself to Ron DeSantis, um, the governor, of, governor Florida. of Florida, about five times during the debates, uh, called his challengers rhinos, Republican in name only, and tried to pit them as more moderate or almost like Democrats um, compared to himself. And and did, did they push back on that, the other Republicans, or— there wasn't a lot of direct pushback uh, for that. It was mostly just, again, hitting on their record and how often sort of the policies that they pushed while they were in office. All right. That was the lieutenant governor's debate. The second one was for secretary of state. Yes, secretary of state. So we had uh, John Thurston, who is uh, the current secretary of state for Arkansas, uh, former state senator Eddie Joe Williams, and then Democrats, Joshua Price, who is the former election commissioner for Pulaski County, and Annabeth Gorman, who's director of the nonprofit Women's Foundation of Arkansas. And a major part of that debate uh, focused on redistricting and whether candidates believed that recent maps were gerrymandered. And that pretty much split how you thought it would. Democrats said, yes, they were gerrymandered. Republicans said, no, they were not. Yes, I would be surprised (laughs) if the incumbent (laughs) Secretary of State said he thought they were gerrymandered. Exactly. And he defended uh, the maps, and we have a cut of that here. This was the first time that Republicans had ever drawn the lines for the state of Arkansas. And to put this under an independent council, there is no such thing as an independent council. Are you kidding me? They are appointed by someone. And pertaining to the districts and pertaining to Godfrey's, Godfrey had an open seat. And we created a Hispanic district, the first certified Hispanic district in the state, in our state's history. And so to think that minorities were, the goal was to disenfranchise is so far from the truth. In fact, we went through painful lengths to make sure that we did not do that. And if you want to look at maps, look at the one that we just, or we're in currently, I should say, versus the new one that we're going to be under. Line them up. If you want to see some crazy lines, look at that one. You talk about gerrymandering. Attorney General, three candidates were invited, two showed up. And in fact, this was the only time you had just a Democrat and just a Republican on stage. Exactly. Yeah. That one was probably the more cordial of all the debates. Interesting. Yeah. um, They did talk. They had a common enemy in (laughs) Tim Griffin, who is current lieutenant governor uh, and also running for attorney general. He did not show up. They took the time to address that. This issue of protecting rights, our current administration has just been missing. We've just been missing. And it's kind of a metaphor that we got missing Griffin. Um, and, I, and I hope that each of you all have learned something here today that those who want to lead should show up and those who want to be leaders should be here to answer questions. Thank you. Um, another point that they touched on was redistricting. Gibson said it was unfair how congressional district lines uh, were drawn. Again, Jesse Gibson, the Democrat. The Democrat, yes. And um, that he said that they disenfranchised black and brown voters, while uh, Leon Jones, the Republican candidate, uh, said it isn't the AG's job to uh, take a position on matters but to defend the laws passed by the legislature. Another point that they did touch on was um, addressing human trafficking in Arkansas. Uh, they brought up a Hot Springs case from last week, a missing person case, um, and both agreed that the state needs to do more to address human trafficking. 
And Jesse Gibson, the Democrat, he's the only Democrat running, so we know he'll be on the ballot in November. Exactly. Whereas Leon Jones Jr. and Tim Griffin do face off in the Republican primary. Exactly. Next month. All right, then, the big one, the headliner, right? Governor. The headliner, governor. And so that one noticeably uh, missing was uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, she is kind of the front runner, definitely the front runner. Yeah, I was going to say, not kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she was noticeably absent from that debate. Those who did show up, we had Democrats Chris Jones, Jay Martin, James Russell, and Supa Se Preth Mays, uh, Libertarian Ricky Harrington Jr., and Republican challenger Doc Washburn. Um, so they were all there, but they all took a moment uh, to address the elephant in the room, which was Sarah Huckabee Sanders not attending. In fact, I think Rex Nelson started and closed that debate by thanking everyone who did show up and sort of admonishing those who did not. These six Arkansans did answer our invitation. They did show up. They did answer our questions to the best of our ability. Not everybody did that. Interesting. Rex Nelson, of course, from the Democrat Gazette. Yes, he was the moderator for that debate. Um, what did they talk about when they weren't talking about who wasn't there? <laughs> they addressed a lot of different topics, you know, including how they would have handled COVID-19 uh, differently, as well as how they would have handled um, Black Lives Matter protest, uh, which shut down parts of the I-630 bridge in Little Rock. Um, they also addressed income tax cuts. I'm just wondering, what did, what did anyone say that they would do differently with COVID-19? A lot of it was addressing how they would have um, acted probably more swiftly, more quickly on uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, which in hindsight, you know, seems easy to, <laughs> to say you would have acted swifter, but I, I don't know. Did, did the lone Republican that was part of this debate, Doc Washburn, take that stand? He did not. Okay. Uh, Doc Washburn took uh, a pretty aggressive stand against any sort of mandates. Uh, he was also, he took a moment to also advocate for ivermectin. <laughs> and it was an interesting choice. He was probably the most loud out of that group, especially uh, when talking about vaccines, COVID-19, and government mandates. Gotcha. Now, uh, we mentioned that Rex Nelson was a moderator for a couple of the debates. So was our friend Roby Brock. Yes, I, I caught up with Roby after the debates and just asked him, you know, what the big takeaways from the day were. Well, I thought everybody was pretty civil and tame, which is kind of a nice in our politics today. You get uh, Republicans, Democrats, and even a few Libertarians up on the stage together and uh, nobody, you know, assaulted anyone. So there were some barbs and some, you know, some terse words at times exchanged. But I thought it was all overall it's very respectful debate about some pretty major, you know, policy issues and things that affect everyday Arkansans. I thought all the candidates addressed the questions pretty head on. And um, and I think that, you know, if you weren't familiar with what some of their positions were, I think they outlined them, you know, pretty plainly. Yeah, were there any uh, policy issues or any answers to questions that you were surprised by or, or maybe didn't know what would be before going in for any of the candidates? Um, sometimes these debates only allow you to go so far with how much you can explore an issue. There's a time limit of a minute and a half or two minutes on some questions. Well, you're not going to learn deep policy thought from some things that are that short. But you can address a lot of topics in a short amount of time. There's an opportunity for follow-up. 
and there's a, an ability to at least get a sense for what the philosophies are that kind of guide some of these candidates. And, and then looking ahead, as we get closer to the primaries, you know, what's going to be the, the big issues to watch out for? You can already see from the pecking order today that there's some clearly established front runners. Sarah Huckabee is the candidate that they're all gunning after. So Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian all taking shots at Sarah Huckabee. Tim Griffin, the front runner in the attorney general's race. The other uh, two candidates for attorney general, the Democrat and the Republican challenger, both taking shots at Tim Griffin. You're just going to see a lot more of that, um, I think, over the next couple of weeks where they really sharpen their focus to either try to come in second so they can be get into a runoff against that front runner and then all bets are off, or they can find a way to surpass them and, and beat them in the primary. That's Ruby Brock from Talk Business and Politics. He was a moderator for two of the debates at Day of Debates last week. Daniel Carruth was there. Daniel, thank you very much. Thanks, Kyle. As Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith reports, voters face many changes to the May 24th primary after the debates at the Arkansas Supreme Court left four contentious voter laws standing, laws that critics say will likely lower voter turnout. The four Republican Party-backed laws aim to tighten protections for elections in an effort to address voter fraud concerns and secure election integrity. The first of the laws, Act 249, targets voters without photo ID, who were previously able to sign a sworn statement and then cast their provisional vote. The act now prohibits this alternative and requires voters to present identification to the county clerk by noon the following Monday. Act 973 focuses on the deadline to submit a mail-in ballot, which previously was the Monday before an election, the law now pushes the deadline to mail the ballot to the Friday before. Act 728 prohibits people from standing within 100 feet of a polling place, except to vote. According to critics, the bill bans actions such as providing water or snacks to voters waiting in long lines. And Act 736 now requires a voter signature on an absentee ballot to be checked against their voter registration, a signature that may have been first signed a year or for some, maybe decades ago. Election workers used to be able to verify multiple signatures. Those were a lot of laws that I just threw out at you, but in order to simplify their effect on Arkansans, I spoke to Christian Adcock, voting rights and public policy specialist for Disability Rights Arkansas, who said many communities will face the burden of the laws, particularly the disabled community. I think it's just important to realize that people with disabilities are affected more proportionally, I would argue, than most, because so many of them rely on government programs or, you know, and not not just, you know, social security disability stuff. I'm talking about programs for housing, things like public transportation, things, so many things that they need to be able to live independently and thrive in their communities. And it's a shame that so often their voice goes unheard because of these other restrictions that I kind of believe were made without even taking them into account. And I imagine those policies are worsened in rural communities that are hard to access, that lack all of the the privileges that a larger city and more urban area can afford. Absolutely, because like and you said afford and that's kind of the the best the best word for it is a lot of these rural areas don't have the infrastructure, they don't have you know, the, things like public transportation, things like, you know, a, a large number of polling places, they just don't have them. And 
So it becomes even more of an issue. And since so much of this state is rural, it's really something that needs to be considered. In the before times, before COVID, we went out and did a lot of polling place surveys around the state. We issued a report in, I want to say, 2018 about sort of the um, physical accessibility issues at the polls in Arkansas. We found uh, something like 90% of the polling places in the state and found that over half had some sort of barrier to accessibility. Now, is there a legal requirement for polling places to be physically accessible? I'm sure there is, but by the sounds of the survey. Absolutely. Under the ADA, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, polls are required to be physically accessible. Where you run into issues sometimes is that there's a little bit of confusion because the Americans with Disabilities Act does not cover churches, except when churches are used as polling places. And so for that one day every, you know, two to four years, that building needs to be accessible. And I think that, like I said, I think that just causes a little bit of confusion. And in a lot of the more rural areas of the state, you know, a church can be the only kind of large community building for miles. So I work with a lot of them to come up with sort of temporary accommodations that they can use. Um, I know up in Washington County, they made really good use of a lot of rubber mats and cones. And, you know, it's basically whatever works and don't let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to this stuff. On a larger level, I think that the state could do better with sort of supporting these efforts and getting out and making sure that things are good in the first place. Um, I realize they've got a lot on their plate, but this is a this is an important issue. I mean, just specifically looking at the four new laws with the aim to make protections around Arkansas elections more stringent. One, Act 249, copies of IDs, which means additional trips, voter signatures, deadline changes for mail-in ballots. How do these policies affect disabled communities? Yeah, a lot of those laws will have an effect on the disability community in Arkansas and Again, I think it's something where there was so much concern over whether or not you agree with it, right or wrong, a concern over election security that, again, I think it's just something that people didn't think about, which is far too common as far as not just Arkansas, but especially in Arkansas, it's people just aren't aware of the sort of knock-on effects that these things can have on the disability community. You mentioned the uh, requirement for I, to bring in ID. If you go in and vote a provisional ballot now, you can no longer, I, I forget what it was called, but there used to be a statement that you could sign that basically said, you know, I am who I say I am. And they've done away with that as a valid substitute for ID. So now you're asking people who may not have reliable access to transportation to take an extra trip on top of voting or people who may not have ID in the first place often because you know, if you're a person with a disability, you might not drive. You might not have ever had a need for an ID. You, there is a, there is a no-cost ID available just for people with voting. But again, it's something they have to go and get. And so that's an issue. And that the ID issue affects more than just the disability community. It can affect seniors. It can affect a lot of folks. This certainly makes voting feel more like a privilege rather than a right for some. To understand more of the context behind the laws, I contacted State Senator Greg Letting to analyze the laws from a policy and legislative perspective. I do think among some lawmakers, there is a sincere intent to ensure that our elections are secure and that only people who are eligible to vote are voting. Um, and that's that's good. We should we all want that. 
but there's also absolutely a strategy behind some of it too to discourage voters um, and not just discourage uh, in some cases just all voters just depressed turnout overall but also specific certain types of voters in order to give um, certain candidates an advantage at the ballot box. And what is the general feeling about these laws in the legislature? I mean, is there broad sweeping support for them? Is it more contentious than we believe them to be? I would say that they are contentious, but not to the point that the uh, lawmakers who oppose them are in any position to stop them from passing. And on that topic of voter turnout, every cycle there are talks of voter turnout increasing, right, in Arkansas. But when we compare that to the grand scale of the eligible population, it's pretty minute. Does that participation concern you? Absolutely. I mean, Arkansas has consistently ranked at or near the bottom when it comes to voter registration. Uh, It's not a new problem. It has gotten a little worse the last couple cycles, which I think in part does speak to the negative effect of the legislation we've been passing. But poor turnout is not a new phenomenon here in Arkansas. And that's frustrating. And I, I think there are a number of reasons. I think one of the biggest reasons is that for almost all of our state's history, we have been a one party state. You know, the Democratic Party had, was an unchecked power for some 140 years until Republicans captured the majorities in the legislature in 2012. Um, but unfortunately, now the problem of one party control that we you know, had in the past, we're, we're there again with Republicans now enjoying supermajority control. And that just means that there is no check on the worst impulses. Um, and I, I really think we'd be better served if we had more balance. What kind of efforts and policies can stimulate better turnout in these elections? That's tough. Obviously, there can go a lot of work that can go into registering new voters. Uh, but it's one thing to register voters. It's another thing to make sure that they actually turn out and go vote. And here again, I think we have we're up against some challenges. Um, one is that because one party dominates so thoroughly, in a lot of cases, there might not be multiple candidates on the ballot to choose from. You might just be stuck with, you know, I'm the only candidate for Senate District 30 here in the ballot in Fayetteville. Um, There are other places where the only option is a Republican candidate. And so people might not feel the need to go turn out to vote. Um, They might not feel that their vote is going to matter. There's also a matter of, I think, just this overall stasis, you know. So there's probably also this sort of apathy, like it doesn't really matter right now who's in charge. I'm still facing the same challenges that are, you know, a lot of people in our state have been facing for such a long time now. I know we haven't been through a cycle yet with these acts in place, but have any of your constituents contacted you about these laws? I did hear from constituents who were adamantly opposed to this legislation. Um, A lot of them talk about how we have this new requirement where your signature, whenever you signed your, your voter registration card, has to match your current signature. And for a lot of people, you know, that might've been something you did years and years and years ago, and your handwriting just sort of evolves over time. Or maybe you have a medical condition to where your your penmanship has changed. And so it was one area where, you know, I, I don't know that that was a necessary security function. I think it was just one more thing that we decided to throw into the process uh, to, again, you know, n- no one single hurdle uh, might keep somebody from voting. But if we add all these little hurdles, uh, it can make the process more complicated. Despite the complexity and oftentimes irritation that voting often comes along with, Letting said that voting is crucial and that the public's votes matter each and every time. I think it is absolutely important to stress the fact that your vote absolutely matters each and every time. It, it 
doesn't matter if you're with the candidate who's going to cruise to victory or you're, you're pulling for an underdog. Just engaging in the process is such an important thing. But also, there are so many races that do come down to just a handful of votes, uh, especially when we're talking about the local level. Uh, but even in the state legislature, in the last cycle, we had um, a candidate lose by about 16 votes, uh, or I should say an incumbent held on by just 16 votes, uh, whereas another incumbent lost by just a few dozen votes. Um, Representative Megan Godfrey in Springdale, um, somewhat famously back in 2018, ousted a Republican incumbent by just about 30 votes. Um, Oftentimes we've had school board races settled by votes in the single digits. So your vote absolutely matters. And I would just encourage you to take the time to vote in this year's primary next month on May 24th, and then to also make sure you turn out on November 8th. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to State Senator Greg Leving and Disability Rights Arkansas's Christian Adcock over Zoom. For more information about elections and voter information, you can go to KUAF.com. This story and more can be heard in the latest episode of our podcast, Natural Election. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring transportation with information on public and private trucking firms, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information available at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas is one of only two states to turn away federal funds to directly help renters recovering from the pandemic. Late last week, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announced he's not accepting a second round of federal housing assistance, a total of $146 million. The governor says a portion of the first round of rental assistance remains. Plus, Arkansas's economy is recovering, he says, because of low employment and plentiful jobs. And we have existing programs in place for rental assistance that were pre-pandemic. Alyssa Allen, a data Allen, Alyssa Allen, a data analyst with the nonprofit group Arkansas Renters United, says many renters continue to struggle due to new economic circumstances. There is a large rise in the price of existence, pretty much. The price of food, the price of gas, basically everything about our lives, including rent. Um, Despite all these raises in prices in other parts of our lives, our wages are pretty much stagnating. And so it's pretty much crippling our Kansans on top of the fact that a lot of us are still recovering from COVID debt. Uh, and the fact that we're still in a pandemic. The second infusion of rental assistance, had the governor accepted it, would have been delivered directly to qualifying tenants and not to landlords, which the governor does not support. Governor Hutchinson says he plans to ask the U.S. Treasury to instead allocate around $60 million, or 40 percent of federal rental assistance to certain nonprofits in Arkansas that support homeless shelters, foster care, prisoner release programs and drug treatment. The other state declining federal rental assistance is Nebraska. Talk Business and Politics reports Arkansas's next allotment of money from a settlement with tobacco companies will be more than $60 million. The funds come from a 1998 settlement with tobacco companies reached to help ease costs of medical costs incurred by smokers. Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge says the annual payments are the result of tobacco companies engaged in bad business by misleading the public about the dangers of their product. The 2022 payment of $60.9 million brings the amount of money paid to Arkansas since 2001 to more than $1.2 billion directed toward health care research and other programs directed at the health of Arkansans.
And tomorrow on Ozarks, the legacy of poor decisions that led to the evacuation of a New York State neighborhood. Keith O'Brien will be at the Bentonville Public Library Saturday to discuss his book, Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe. He talked with us this morning about the book. I am attempting to capture the human drama here. And, and so, you know, this is, you know, a human narrative, a story of people, um, you know, in their homes, in their kitchens, you know, uh, learning of problems and then fighting effectively to escape those homes over the course of two years. That conversation on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Keith O'Brien will discuss Paradise Falls at the Bentonville Public Library Saturday morning at 11. And just ahead, our militant grammarian enlightens us about homophones, those words that sound the same but mean different things. First, though, let's take a breather and spend just a moment next to the North Fork River near the Missouri Ozarks community of Dora. North Fork River rolling along in the Missouri Ozarks near the community of Dora, Missouri. This is Ozarks at Large. On the next episode of Blockchain, the Future of Money, we discuss NFTs. What is an NFT? What are they correlated to? How do they function? And more. On the next episode of Blockchain, the Future of Money, with your host, Eric Denboer, a podcast produced by KUAF. Available for free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studios, Catherine Sherlds, our Milton Grammarian. Hey. Hello. Kyle, we've talked about homophones a few times, mm-hmm. but I don't think we've ever looked at them this way. First of all, what's a homophone? So it's two words that are spelled differently, but pronounced more or less the same or maybe exactly the same. Yeah, and but and the key is that they have different meanings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. yes. Mm-hmm. The roots tell the story. Homo means same, and phone means sound. Mm-hmm. Right. Hundreds of homophones are found in English. Flower and flower. One is what you make cookies with. The other is in your garden. Mm-hmm. Profit and profit. <laughs> Which can interweave with each other, but <laughs> one is someone who you follow in a spiritual sense, uh-huh. the other is money that yeah. you make. That you might give to that guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or he might, she yeah. might make, yes. Yeah. And that fact can be fodder for some pretty good jokes. Just view Facebook for proof. Do you have any favorites on Facebook, Tom? Well, I don't even necessarily have any on favorites on Facebook, oh, just... but I have a favorite homophone. Okay. Which is a weird thing to say out loud now that I think about it. <laughs> I've always liked aisle. Like uh-huh. in a grocery store, uh-huh. an aisle, like a peninsula. Uh huh. Uh huh. I don't know why. That's interesting because that's one of the ones we're going to talk about oh. today. Well, often the difference of the one letter marks a difference in the parts of speech. So sure. you're saying AI versus just I. Uh, right, mm-hmm. right. Okay, so what's the letter difference between advice and advise? A C and an S. Mm hmm. Now, bonus points. Mm. What part of speech is each of those? Advice with a C. Well, that's the harder one. Advise. 
Okay, go ahead. Is is a verb. Yes. To advise. Mm-hmm. Advice would be a noun. Yeah. I'm right. receiving advice. Giving yeah. it. It's, a, yeah. it's not tangible, but it's a thing that yes. I give you. Yeah. Um, advice is a noun meaning guidance or recommendations. David rarely took advice from his wife. <laughs> advice okay. is a verb meaning to offer suggestions about the best course of action. Yeah. She would advise him not to tailgate the semi. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he take it. Yeah. Okay. Two of the most often confused homophones are affect and affect. Effect and effect. Right. And you really pronounce them pretty much the same. One starts with an A, one starts with an E. E, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Knowing the parts of speech for these two can be very helpful in getting them right in your writing. And, of course, all of this is writing because right. they sound... That's, exactly. They're homophones. They right. sound alike. Okay. So... Uh, what is a a with an a f f e c t is what it what that's a, part that's mm-hmm. a verb yes. if i if i turn the steering wheel that has an effect on the car correct correct coronavirus affected our traveling yes when effect with an e is used as a noun it means a change which is a result or consequence of an action or other cause when i use the steering wheel and spin it the effect is the car turns left or right correct correct and in my example, the effect was that we didn't fly anywhere for two years. Right. Struggling to remember which homophone to use, WordGenius.com suggests substituting the verb alter mm. or the noun result. Okay. Yeah. Sure. If alter fits, then effect with an A is the word you want. If result seems right, then effect, E, is the correct word. Now, for those fellow snoots out there... <laughs> Yes, in some contexts, effect is a verb and affect is a noun. Effect can be used as a verb meaning to bring about. He wanted to effect change. Right? Yeah, yeah don't use that. <laughs> if one were trying to affect change, that would probably mean that they're trying to speed up, slow down, or totally stop change. Mm. Let's say like social media. Mm. Ironically, it might be easier to effect change than to affect the changes that are already happening. That's Snootville for sure. But (laughs) and affect a as a noun means feeling emotion or specific emotional response. It's pretty rare. And I'm gonna stay out of the weeds trying to explain it further. See Grammarly.com for guidance. (laughs) Now, the one that you said is your favorite. Yes. Uh, Isle and Isle. Um, So as an Isle of Man, an island nation and self-governing British crown dependency in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland is spelled how? Isle of Man. Mm I-S-L-E. And it's probably pretty easy to remember the I because it's island. Right. Yeah. And and these are two words that are when you think about when I think about an aisle, it's usually narrow. Mm-hmm. When I think of an island, Australia mm-hmm. notwithstanding, it's pretty mm-hmm. narrow. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's the letter difference between capital and capital? A and O. Mm-hmm. And how do they differ in meaning? One is the you know the seat of power, mm-hmm. and the other is Charles Dickens writing "At a boy." <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Right, it's capital. Oh, oh okay. Uh, okay, but now you, I'm not sure you got that wrong, but you may have. The OL oh. is, it's exclusively what? No other meaning for OL. 
on the a I, building. Really? Yes. So the Capitol is in the Capitol. Wait a second. Yes. So that thing with the dome in Little Rock is only OL. Oh, that's right. But Little Rock is AL. Uh, yes. How did I make it this long? <laughs> you didn't have a good editor. <laughs> radio. And, and your radio. Nobody yeah. can tell what you're saying. <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Uh, capital can refer to uppercase letters, uh-huh. money or assets, uh-huh. or an important city. Right. Little Rock is the capital A of Arkansas. But capital is a building, period. Let's say someone was referring to Bentonville as the capital of American commerce because Bentonville is headquartered mm-hmm. there. They, that would be a proper usage with AL. Mm-hmm. But Walmart headquarters... Not the capital, no, OL, no. because it's not it, the capital. It, it, uh, a building housing a legislative assembly. Whoa. It's that, it's that specific. But City Hall. I mean, is I not... suppose we could call okay. that a capital, but okay. nobody does. It's kind of like the difference between um, laws and ordinances. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But one thing that makes that easy to remember is that the O is ex- so exclusive. Gotcha. It is a building. Okay, so let me ask you, then mm-hmm. going back to the exclamation, which mm-hmm. I think of as being kind of British, like capital, like mm-hmm. an idea. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That's A-L. Hey. Can't be O. I assume, yeah, sure. Wow. I am wonder, I would like to know, I could look up mm-hmm. the origin of that, because a capital idea, I probably, well, if, I wonder if it's capital letter. I don't know. We, you know, sometime in the future, we'll find out, I'm sure. Or, or money. Um, that's money. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'll have more for our next session, Kyle, but let's stop here, or is it here? <laughs> I hear you. I'm Milton Grammarian. Is Catherine Sheralds. <laughs> KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting Little River Band in concert at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs on Saturday, May 7th. A limited number of reserved seat tickets are now available online at tickets.thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large. In northwest Arkansas, the name Gar Hole has long been associated with a popular area swimming hole. Gar Hole Records is a record label founded during the pandemic by local musicians Kurt DeLashmet and Nick Shoulders. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis recently spoke with DeLashmet, who previously ran the Tape Dad label in Fayetteville, about this new venture which he says has a certain focus. Garhole is a country music or folk music or kind of traditional music label, Americana, that kind of thing. We have kind of broad interpretations of what all those things mean. But I think, you know, we're, we're trying to do a good curatorial job, trying to make sure that at least an argument can be made for everything that we release falling within one of those genres. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you started Tape Dad in 2018. How has the formation of Garhole been different from that? So Garhole is built upon all of the like mistakes and failures I made through Tape Dad, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I, I got to learn through trying things and them either working or not what I wanted to do with Garhole. But you know, Garhole is like an actual registered business, you know, we have a bank account, (laughs) the amount of investment, uh, both time-wise and money-wise into release projects is a lot higher uh, with Garhole Records than it was for Tape Dad. Tape Dad is really, um, 
you know, we just make cassettes. And then there's some like minor promotional efforts that I would usually employ for different things. And then, you know, if, if we were working with an artist that was close to town or lived in Fayetteville, then we would put some kind of release show together. But other than that, it was just a very simple, like, you want cassettes, I will make them. <laughs> like, we will decide on a method for selling them, and that's pretty much it. What led to you and Nick starting this label, especially in the middle of a pandemic? Garhol really came from a unique time and place within both of our lives. I mean, Nick put out OK Crawdad, his first full-length record, in December of 2019. And uh, it was, like, well-received by the people who were already paying attention to Nick. In February of 2020, this video production company called Western AF, the AF stands for what you might assume. Right, something we can't say on the radio. So this production company released a a field recording video, just a a video of Nick playing the first song on that record, Rather Low. And when that video came out, it's hard to say why, but it just clicked, and the video went viral. So Nick's profile in the music world started to grow rapidly, and then COVID happened. So any of the, like professional entities that were interested in Nick, a lot of those folks got furloughed immediately. So Nick is like watching like his streaming numbers and social media numbers go through the roof. And, you know, everybody in the world is kind of sitting around not knowing what to do with themselves. When COVID happened, Nick decided to move back here to Fayetteville. And actually when when he got here, he didn't tell me this when we talked about him moving up here, but he brought like boxes and boxes of t-shirts that he had made and all this merch and he had made it all because he was going on tour uh he thought he was going to go on tour right um so he got here with a hilarious amount of shirts and the idea was to start an online store he had the store up for 24 hours and accumulated like 400 plus orders so 24 hours yeah he so he took the store down And then we kind of scratched our heads for a while, like, oh, my goodness, like, what are we going to do? And it took a really long time to get all those first orders out. That was a transformative experience. Nick realized that, you know, there needs to be a better system for all that. And I had the terrible idea of let's start a full-blown record label. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the label was created initially to support Nick's blossoming career. And then the secondary... But just as important goal was to use Nick's momentum in this kind of strange musical world that is like country music, Americana world, to open up other doors to allow us to promote other artists, our friends, really, Mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully help them find success, too. So you have branched out beyond just Nick. You have other people on the label. Who yeah. who else have you added to the label? So there's a guy from New Orleans. His name is Chris Hacker. He was actually just here. The auctioneer said to the valet, you're the guy that takes the cars to the garage. The valet said, I know that, but did you know this? Inside there's some caviar. Caviar, 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 caviar With 
the smoothness of marbles are the old sturgeon's pearls. Caviar, 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 caviar. The gumballs, the black sea, the taste of the unborn. Yeah, Chris is great. He does like a 70s, 80s country folk thing. He gets compared to John Prine quite a bit, which is an apt comparison, and he's certainly a big fan. But Chris brings his own personality to the table. It is That is his strong point. He also has one of the best like live recording bands that I've ever heard. It's an incredible band. They're called The Growing Boys. Mm-hmm. Love Chris. We also are working with a faithful artist named Austin Cash. We just announced his presence on the label late in January. He's, we're calling it ambient Americana. Mm-hmm. So he's really into like solo acoustic guitar. There's this world of like, it's kind of like meditative solo acoustic folk guitar. It's called American Primitive. John Fahey is the the guy who coined that term, and he's still probably the best example of it out in the world if anyone wants to look it up. So Austin does like a Fahey-esque American Primitive thing, and he kind of blends it with what most people would consider to be ambient music, like sprawling soundscapes, you know, what Brian Eno would call generative music. that Austin put out in 2020 called All Over Alabama, Mm -hmm. which is like two 20-plus minute tracks of looped kind of classic country music instrumentation. It's really beautiful. It's one of the records that me and Nick used to listen to all the time that year, actually. So really, really thankful to be able to re-release that. Mm -hmm. And then his new EP, which is called Palisades, which is a little bit of solo acoustic, a little bit of soundscape stuff. It's great. We're also working with a local artist named Jess Hart. Find me in the mess of everything around you. Wish I would have found you. Wrap my arms around you. Sometimes I still wish you were back in my apartment. Sweating out your problems. Wishing you weren't on them Just like Nick Drake Just like Sylvia Platt The world Justice release is a little bit more like kind of indie rock-ish but there's this kind of folksiness to his songwriting that I thought made it a good candidate for Garhole Records even though you know, calling what Jess Harp 
because country music is a stretch. Yeah. But um, Jess has a beautiful voice. The band, what they put together is is really kind of shoegazy. Yeah. There's a lot of like a lot of heaviness and electric guitar and like layering and yeah. It's a very sonically interesting EP. Yeah, that'll come out late April. Okay. That'll also be a cassette-only release. And yeah, then we have Jude Brothers mm-hmm. is also on the label. Jude is actually an employee. Jude the Office Dude uh, <laughs> is their official title. Um, honestly, couldn't think of a better person to work alongside doing this type of work. Jude's great. Jude is also a very, very talented musician. Freak Folk is, is I guess, what you would call it. adventurous kind of modern folk music. It's great. It's beautiful. They're also multi-instrumentalists. They play banjo and harp in addition to acoustic guitar and other things. They have a beautiful voice. Mm -hmm. So Jude is wrapping up a recording project now that we'll be releasing on Garahole. Not exactly sure when that will come out because we intend to press it to vinyl. Okay. And vinyl is is a complicated subject these days. And then everybody else is a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been your strategy on adding, you know, artists to the roster at Garhole? It's for me, it's a similar strategy to Tape Dad, where really just looking within the networks that we've already established and really trying to let things grow organically. Lucky for us, there's tons of talented people that both me and Nick have made contact with over the years. And within all of those talented people, there are definitely a handful that kind of fit the Garhole aesthetic. So yeah, it's really just been calling up friends, being like, hey, you want to do this weird thing? <laughs> Give it a good good try with us. And uh, yeah, everybody that's on this label or will be announced on this label is someone that I know have like a personal relationship with or Nick has a personal relationship with. There's a lot of folks from New Orleans that'll be coming into the fold. Uh, Nick lived down there for three-ish years, like three years. And there is a thriving Americana scene in New Orleans that is very interesting. I would say that there is a unique sound to that New Orleans scene. I feel like for the quality of what a lot of people are doing down there, it doesn't receive enough attention and that's okay with me because I will <laughs> I, I like that stuff exposing and, New uh, Orleans via favor I love it <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, it's an amazing privilege yeah. to get to work with some of these folks that was Kurt DeLashman of Fayetteville's Garhole Records speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio you can find out more about the label at GarholeRecords.com also as Kurt mentioned in the interview Garhole artist and Fayetteville resident Jess Harp has an album coming out soon Next Friday, May 6th, 
Jess and his band will perform the first of two album release shows at Maxine's Live in Hot Springs. Then, on Saturday, May 7th, the Fayetteville release show takes place at Smoke and Barrel Tavern. Both shows will also feature a set by Adam Fawcett. You can find out more about both of those shows at the Facebook page for Jess Harp or Garhole Records. Now, I'm guessing if you have a fan of the Disney movie Encanto in your life, you've heard that person or persons sing the catchy tunes from the movie. Maybe a lot. This summer, they'll be able to sing along to the songs with the movie and a full band at the Walmart Amp. This morning, it was announced the venue will host the Encanto sing-along film concert tour on Saturday, July 30th. The movie will be shown in its entirety and... There will be an onstage band playing along. Those in the audience will be encouraged to sing along. Tickets go on sale Friday morning through the usual Walton Art Center outlets. This approaching Saturday, the exhibit A Cast of Blues, a collection of resin masks of blues greats accompanied by photographs of generations of blues musicians, will include a gallery talk from the artist who created the mask, Sharon McConnell, and the curator of the national touring exhibit, Chuck Haddocks. Both will be guests of the Music Education Initiative at the Cash 214 Art Gallery in downtown Springdale. McConnell and Haddocks will speak Saturday at 2.30. Their talk is free. The exhibit, A Cast of Blues, can be seen for free at the 214 Cash Gallery Monday through Saturday from 10 to 5. And Friday night. Shannon Wurst, who recently played the legendary Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, will be playing with Brad Helms on Mount Sequoia. That takes place Friday night at 6.30. Information about tickets for that concert can be found at mountsequoia.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is KUAF 91.3. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, in Cincinnati. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Daniel Carruth, who produces his stories inside the Karen Taha News Studio, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Timothy Dennis, Catherine Sherlds, and Jacqueline Froelich, who provided information about rental assistance. Further production today came from Matthew Moore. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large, our conversation with writer and journalist Keith O'Brien, and much more. Also, you can always listen on your schedule with the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's free. It's every day of the week that we have a daily episode, and you can download or subscribe through your preferred podcast distributor. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us.